what I want to touch upon is something you just said when you go out with your daughters and the value of uh, I love not only the idea of exploring together but all three of you journaling around the same things yes. what do you stand to gain from this when you're with younger people who have well you could argue less perspective less knowledge and uh, less expertise on these things oh so much to gain so here's my background in natural history throughout my childhood i was an amateur naturalist anytime i could find a field guide i would stay up late at night at field guides with my flashlight at the university i studied natural history conservation biology and environmental education i got a master's degree in wildlife biology and then a postgraduate certificate in scientific illustration so i have a lot of nature natural history background and back when i started teaching people about nature in those days the state of the art was if you want to teach somebody about redwood trees you memorize a bunch of stuff about redwood trees and then you walk up to the redwood trees and try to download this information in the most engaging way you can right and when you as a participant are along on one of those hikes you'll listen to your ranger your naturalist and you'll be thinking wow she sure knows a lot about redwood trees and you'll be entertained in the moment and then you go home and you forget all those details and all that information and what you remember was wow there's a naturalist out there who sure knew a lot about redwood trees and if you go to the park go along with her because she'll tell you interesting things and keep you entertained and that doesn't change people it doesn't connect people with the natural world. I think that's not the naturalist guide that I want to be. I want to contrast that with what we do in We're Nature Journal. We have these three practices that we do. They are, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. So I notice is whatever I observe. And we walk up to something and what my daughters and I will do is we'll start saying out loud, I notice this about it. I notice this. 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 When you are observing with other people, something that you very quickly realize is that other people notice things that are different than what you would have noticed. Right. And that perspective is really interesting and really, really useful. Because if I want to grow, I want to regularly expose myself to different perspectives and different ways of thinking about things. I also want to expose myself to different ways of fundamentally looking at things. Mm -hmm. So when they notice something that I wouldn't have seen, that will pull my brain into an investigation of that same phenomenon. And we do the same with questions. As we start to observe something, questions begin to come up. The kind of questions that I will ask is based on my experience and my mood and my presuppositions and my training and that's different than the sorts of questions that they will come up with if you and i were walking out in the forest and we're looking at the same phenomenon the kind of questions that you would ask would be surprising because of your different perspective and that would be really interesting. And the third part, so the I notice is observation. I wonder is curiosity. And it reminds me of that is creative thinking. So 
what we do is we say like this, I anything that any metaphor or thing that you've read or experience in your past that in one way or another relates to this, um, we want to bring those out because we want to practice how do I connect ideas. And whatever I look at, if I start doing it, it reminds me of all of these different thoughts and ideas. It's, it's fun and also incredibly intellectually stimulating. And when you do that with other people, there it reminds me of their questions their, and even their observations. We're looking at the same mushroom, but what you see about it will be different than what I see. So that's the fun, that's the mantra of this nature journaling community. We do, I, essentially we're doing, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, and taking all those things and putting them into our journals by any means necessary, using words, using pictures, using numbers, using haikus, using diagrams, using maps, all these different sorts of things. And different people also have different strengths in or preferences in how they would record something. So even if we had made the same observations, the same questions, the same it reminds me of, which of course we never could, you would be recording that information in a way that is different than the way that I do. And that changes the way you look at it. It changes the way you think about it. And so another part of the ethic in this nature journaling community is we share our stuff with each other and then we actively try to incorporate ideas that we see that other people are doing into, oh, I've never done that before. Oh, you made mm -hmm. a little map of that and did a cross section across that part there and then did a close up of that. I love the way you're taking those different strategies and, and integrating them. If I use that same approach, it's not going to make me a clone of you because I will be looking at this object through a different lens, my lens, but using some of your strategies, I will think differently on the paper. Speaking of words and what they mean, I'm very curious to understand how, as an art designer, you felt this curiosity to see if you were an artist and then what does that word artist mean with respect to being an art designer, being a quote unquote, for lack of a better word, being a creative, so to say. Yes. And yes. how it, you know, take, take me to that time when you were engaging with this curiosity and then mm -hmm. it begins to get expressed through this daily drawing challenge. Yes. Um, well, I am someone, as is hopefully clear from this conversation, I'm always litigating what I am saying. I, I'm, I'm always analyzing what comes out of my own mouth <laughs> first. You know, I was like, by the time it gets to you, I already have my own critique. I already have, and people are like, you know, one of the things I, I say is that I really don't care if someone doesn't like my work. I'm totally at peace with that. I do not care because I, I really have a strong sense of my own perspective. I'm not looking for outside validation because I know the context of the work that I'm doing. And I have already made my own peace with what I am trying to get across. And so some people are like devastated if someone says they don't like 
their work. I'm like, great. It's okay. Okay. But that's not something I feel like is my responsibility to make sense of. Um, and so that's all to say, when I made the decision that I was going to start pursuing asking myself this question, I knew I was pursuing it on two fronts. I was trying to understand the, the you know, you were talking about the, the double meaning of words and that is a really great way to think about how that's a great way for me to talk about this because that is actually how i think about this everything i do i think on two parallel fronts i think about what it means to me and then i think about what it means and i know what it means to me is not necessarily what it means and i can represent the complexity of these two ongoing considerations and that I can honor that sometimes they're different and sometimes they overlap. And when they overlap, it's, it's a revelation and I, and I, I learn more from it, but I'm really always looking to learn from myself as I'm doing what I'm doing. And so I was curious fundamentally, first of all, to see if I was actually an artist, I actually did not know that. And I was allowing myself to pursue questioning that and to actually give myself an answer. I didn't, I'm not someone that likes to just ruminate on things for forever. You know, that's the art director in me. That is, things are time sensitive and there's an urgency around actually answering a question and solving um, solving a conundrum, solving an issue, solving a production problem. I'm always looking to get answers. And that's my contract with myself. That's not anything that any is external or for anyone else. I don't, I, I, I don't need someone else to provoke a question with me. Like I'm starting with that within myself. And I, and I guard that very you know, judiciously. And I was just kind of like, can I do this? But then at the same time, I was like, what does it mean that I can do this? It's going to open up Pandora's box. Basically, I have to kind of rethink everything. If, if I'm an artist I'm, and, and I'm an artist all the time, how am I going to make that work? Like, I work. I work for myself. I do a lot of work. Like, how am I going to have the time to do this? So, Nishan, did I tell you I'm colorblind? Uh, a year ago, I put on those colorblind glasses. That give, it's a filter that reduces the colorblindness. And, like, my whole life got shaken because of all the big questions. There's a museum in Utrecht that has them, and I've been putting it off for years. So I put in the glasses and I looked at the wall that was, I think to me it was red. And I put the glasses on and suddenly I saw neon pink. But how do I know that this color is called neon pink? Exactly right. No, it's it's a great question. It's a, actually a really great question. Like 
even two people who have no color blindness how do they know that they see the same red i knew i was color blind because of when in elementary school you also need to see a doctor like a pediatrician i think and they have this test with the dots where you need where they check if you see the numbers in different colors and and i could like half of them i couldn't see um and they never expected it because it's very uncommon amongst girls but my father is colorblind and my father's father and my mother's father which gives you i think a 50% chance be so my sister is not colorblind i am um uh, and i i i've never really experienced it i thought it was interesting <laughs> growing up it was an interesting part of me you know um and uh i did have trouble with so my bike got stolen and and i reported it as a i think i reported it being a purple bike and then the police phone like yeah we found a bike that's similar but it's blue <laughs> well so and that's why i always thought okay so blue and purple are um difficult for me and then in art school they told me that my colors were, were off so because of this this stamp if you will of being colorblind i always thought okay so i i won't be good with color color is not my thing and then in cambridge we had a a color workshop by the color tutor julia doherty doherty and she um we had to do the color circle and i told her like yeah i can't i can't do it because i can't see nuances i know i I have a difficulty with very nuanced things to see them. And she told me to try it anyway. And then her workshop went on and on. And we had to make, we had to uh, choose a color and then make all kinds of values of it and tones. And then we had to combine them. And she kept walking past, said, yeah, just go on, just go on, just move forward. And then all of a sudden she stood behind me and she said, wow this is so interesting look at the combinations you're making and uh, and and she just really pushed me to keep exploring and keep exploring but she just gave me a couple of rules that really helped me like always put light and dark next to each other try to think of complementary color uh, colors and match them together so i i well yeah i i've used this set of rules since then which have really helped me. And now people always tell me that my colors are so fantastic. And the funny thing is that when I put on these uh, glasses in the museum, Anna was filming the, the whole time. She said, I want to film you when you look at your own work. <laughs> so I put these glasses on and I looked at my own work and I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> I, uh, because I... I think I don't experience my work as using very bold colors, but they apparently are very bold, very bright. And so I always thought I couldn't see blue that well. But when I put on the glasses, it turns out that, that, that there was this whole pink and red spectrum that I apparently can't see. Or, well, I've also dived into a lot of scientific research about the glasses and it's still quite... Uh, there's a lot of discussion about them because it's only a blue filter that you put in front of your eyes. 
still, yeah, and research is difficult because it's all about perception and you can't measure you... cones and the influence of the cones. But well, my spectrum is smaller, and I did, I did notice, which made me actually really sad that pigeons have the most beautiful pink feet. And I do know that I see them more grayish because that's something I could check with Anna, my partner there. And that made me really sad. I had to, I also use, if you look up the glasses on YouTube, you see a lot of people crying. I also really cried a lot <laughs> because it also makes you feel like all of a sudden, that's why I hesitated doing the whole experiment because you, you know that like, oh, I'm missing something that I I didn't know I was missing before. And now I have them. So my family, my father also cried seeing the video and he doesn't want to do it. But he, um, uh, so my sister and him, they had a little crowdfunding and they gave me part of the money to buy the glasses for myself. <laughs> my, so the video material um, uh, made them emotional and touched them so much. But I haven't bought them because I still don't know if I want to have them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. It's a good question. Like I, I think it's, I, I wonder if it's like if it doesn't like impede you. Like for example, traffic lights. If you don't have trouble with that kind of functional uh, oh. behavior in your world, then mm-hmm. I wonder if it is right to do this because well, people listen differently. There are people who can't hear low pitch. There are people who can't hear the yeah. same high pitch. Should they be quote unquote corrected? Uh, I don't, I have, I wear glasses, so I don't see clearly at a distance. So is it necessary that I have corrective surgery? I can see why I need to wear glasses because otherwise I am an, I can't drive, for example, and I can't recognize people across the road. So that's not good. But uh, there are so many of these uh, facts and there are also cultural factors. So I was recently reading this book and it was about on the subject of traffic lights. It was saying how in certain countries, so in Japan, in in this example, they were talking about Japan. They did not for the longest time have a distinction between blue and green as separate colors. So green was considered a shade of blue and there was no yeah. word for green. And the word for green, which is Midori, is a relatively new word that has been formed. So even the mm. traffic lights would be red, yellow, blue. And mm-hmm. uh, they would be called that as well. They would not be thought of as green. You can be in a culture in which you don't even look at the color as a green color. You see it as a shade, like your shirt right now could be considered a shade of blue. Yeah. And that's just a cultural practice, nothing to do with biology. Mm -hmm. And that can think about what a profound change it is in somebody's way of looking at the world, looking at, like if, if the, the trees and the sky were just different shades of the same color, that's such an interesting thought to me. Oh, that was that was my biggest fear that I like that I would see nature differently, but there was no change in the spectrum there, which was a relief. Yeah, <laughs> I did so, but I did so because I was in a museum. I also I went into the art room to look at the like the old masters, and I uh, and and that also shocked me because it was actually quite different. So I was thinking like I could get the glasses just. When I would visit a museum, I would put them on. Putting them on also makes, I think it would still make me very sad because every time I would feel like, oh yeah, this is what I'm missing out on or something. Yeah, I don't, 
or there's something wrong with my eyes or I don't know. Yeah. The idea that you're missing out already is, it yeah. feels unnecessary, no? Like, it isn't it possible to think that you are seeing something that other people don't see? Yes. And who said that it has to be seen in this one way? Like, even uh, like Van Gogh, he was said to be colorblind in some ways, right? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we are not seeing the colors he saw. So is he yeah. wrong or are we wrong? Maybe we are using Vincent and I. <laughs> Maybe we are using bolder colors because we, you know, we experience the world so much grayer. Yeah, yeah, Vincent and you. We need, yeah, we need the bolder colors to to make more fun of our gray worlds. <laughs> Yeah, but I do remember watching like an educational program for children when I was a child, like literally showing the spectrum of a non-colorblind person and then the spectrum of a colorblind person. Yeah, and that that was what I was crying about in the video. Is I saw the pigeon feed and I was saying, why aren't you people happier? <laughs> you can see these gorgeous pigeon feet every day. Why is there still depression? Every publishing company, every time I see a headlight about a publisher, it's like, even if they're huge, something terrible is happening to it. And so that's where Kickstarter comes in, because never at a time has there been a situation where you can do all of this stuff yourself. And eventually the book will be for sale. I mean, you could pre-order it now, but you can do it bypassing a lot of the traditional ways that things were sold because people don't necessarily get books in bookstores anymore. As a matter of fact, when I was at Michael's just the other day getting art supplies, they had no books at all where they used to have a whole wall with them. And so just the way people are getting you know, reading material has completely changed. And the Kickstarter is not just a way to raise money, but it's also a marketing platform. So it's a way to get more eyes on your project than you could with your smaller sort of social group. You know, obviously everything has its pros and cons, but I think it's a really interesting and exciting way for artists to get their work out there. Because especially like talking about comics, like the traditional way was going to conventions and conventions were a lot of fun, but it's also a huge amount of time investment sitting at a table, making merch for a table. And I think that this, you know, Kickstarter has really helped a lot of comic publishers and art book publishers. It's a great way to kind of get your work to a bunch of different audiences. So uh, this part of Kickstarter is something I wasn't aware of. Uh, you say that it helps you also reach beyond your own social network? Yes. There are a lot of people that shop on Kickstarter like you would be on Amazon or something. They just go mm -hmm. through projects and buy stuff. And that is its own sort of social media itself. And so you get a lot of people. I mean, that was one thing that was interesting working on a project like since a cabinet of curiosities is that it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very small region. Cincinnati is not of interest to a lot of people outside of Cincinnati, <laughs> um, you know, but it did get shipped all over the country. You know, people were interested in it. I've been thinking about the decision of my teacher to not show me any art. 
And for many years, I was upset with him about it. He, he mm-hmm. passed away. He was one of the people who, who died and uh, my constellation fell apart. So for many years, when I would think about him, I would think that now I would like to learn why he did that, because I think it would be beneficial for me to see works of art. I think it wouldn't be in detriment to my uh, education. I could have grown in a different way, become mm-hmm. maybe more analytical about my art and um, a little bit more open to all kinds of other things. But now that I think about why, one of the reasons why he might have done that was that in the uh, USSR, the art that was available for people to see was much narrower than the actual art in the whole world. There was a lot of government control and a government-dictated ways of depicting things. There was a lot of um, what was called real proper art. So if he was not showing me any art, he would be able to avoid a situation when he would tell me, okay, this is the art that government wants me to, you know, to show to you. And this is a real art that I want to see. And this is just a complicated thing to, to, to talk about to a five, six year old. You have to go into all sorts. I mean, you just can't. You don't do that. So I think that might be now I just came up to that thought that maybe it's the reason why he did what he did. Um, it was also very, um, um, well, there's no other way to put it, but uh, the structure of the country was built so that the best artists would go to the capital. So if you wanted to have any sort of career, you would have to go to Moscow or St. Petersburg, which was Leningrad at that moment, if you wanted to have a best education for that. It was, it was expected you would be able to get the proper ranking in the whole artist's world if you got education from that place. A lot of people, a lot of people in Ukraine in particular, opted out of that. Um, there is uh, a huge amount of very interesting artists, graphic artists in particular, that I've, some of them I've, I've just discovered during the last year. People who opted out of that going the route of being accepted by the government and making more money and basically winning in this game right. of uh, being on top of uh, everything and uh, going into um, a different way of exploring the whole uh, art. It's um, well, it's, it's a separate topic, but it's also uh, quite an interesting one. I don't think that I was moving towards something at first, for sure. I think I was moving away. The world that I saw, the world of art, was um, it looked to me. Um, like an unstable place. Um, and um, I just couldn't understand. The, the system where people would be able to find uh, work for them was falling apart. And I saw how many, many people in all parts of life, many people struggled with the previous way of life. And I wanted to be a part of this new life. It was also a big moment for being a part of uh, the change of, of learning that um, Ukraine can become a separate country 
and, uh, you know, just being a part of the whole conversation of uh, languages and, and uh, history and, and learning about all of that, it's, it, it's such a, it was such a big explosion of ideas and uh, uh, opportunities to be involved in an actual change. In the Soviet Union, being involved in change, well, it was basically impossible. In order to be a ch part of a change, you had to be a part of a system, and I knew that I never want to be a part of the system. It was something that was engraved in me from the very, very early age. And all of a sudden, this new system comes up, and, and people start building it, and it doesn't exist yet, but I can be a part of it. And it's exploding in, in all directions. And um, I think it was way more interesting at that moment, where the art world, it didn't sound like stable place from economical point of view and it's it was filled with people who are were struggling well everyone's struggling but they they were struggling where i was struggling as well mm -hmm. um i also the school that i went to i, I went to wonderful school where there was a, a math and physics uh, program and i was a part of that math and physics program and i was surrounded by wonderful friends who are still my friends um, I had great teachers, um, very interesting human beings and very good teachers who tried their best to support kids through this changing time, to give them some, some grounding, some, some ways of um, moving forward. And um, I ended up um, entering uh, a completely different world of uh, math and physics for a little bit as uh, a way to get away from arts and have a little bit more stable, uh, as I thought, world. I haven't survived. I, I uh, became uh, a student at the university. Uh, I uh, quit uh, after the first year. I haven't finished the first year because of various reasons. Uh, again, the whole world was changing around me. But... Um, I, I kind of had this brief moment of uh, math and physics, and then I moved to a different higher education or to one of the new um, institutions that was formed uh, in Kharkiv. Again, it's a city full of institutions, and even more are opening up as the country becomes uh, part of a new Ukraine and um, a different new world as, as the country tries to make itself into something new. And that was a very interesting also experience because um, I the education that I got there would probably be equal to um, uh, Masters of Business or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of floor, there was a lot of uh, um, economics, there was a lot of marketing, and I was concentrating on marketing. So it was, it was a very not art education. But it was a very interesting place because um, people who organized this new um, educational institution, they they asked teachers from, not from one place, but from many, many places to come and teach, and they allowed them to teach something that they're interested in. So in, in the former education, the um, government controlled Basically, there was a program you had, the teachers had to follow that program quite a bit um, for, on all levels of education. And experiment was such a rare and unique thing that if some teacher was doing some experimentation, 
people would flock to to get that <laughs> immediately. So I, I had this wonderful opportunity to be a student in a place where lots of teachers also came to teach an experimental course. Um, and at the same time, I started working as as um, a graphic designer because um, computers were starting to appear first uh, a little bit and then more and more. And uh, it was um, what I started uh, being interested in and also learning uh, little by little. And uh, I'm doing graphic design up until today. Tell me about this path of re-education. Like what is, what are some of the ways you said podcasts? What are some of the ways that you're doing it? Well, the a big part of uh, my motivation, as I said, is, is definitely the war. Um, I probably would not have put, I definitely would not have put as much um, time and effort. Uh, and the big reason is not only war, but also a lot of knowledge that, um, and a lot of thought that came when we faced um, um, what is happening and uh, what is the who is the uh, this neighboring country and uh, um, how the relationship throughout the centuries has changed. The uh, Ukrainian language existed and uh, for, for quite a long time and it was oppressed by um, the all sorts of uh, government that was uh, in by Russian Empire, by Soviet Union, by Russia, but it's it's been under so much um, stress from all uh, from a historical point, you can't just even say that there was a time when it was uh, completely uh, free. There were brief moments when the language was allowed to blossom into a full um, literature and and all sorts of uh, life sides of life, but because of because now I am looking at the history and I'm opening my eyes to lots and lots of things that um, I was not, I did not pay enough attention. I did not put in the work to look at these things. Um, I feel that it is important for me, especially as for someone who, who used to speak Russian, to look at the things, especially for someone who grew up in, in the Soviet Union with the whole idea that, um, idea that was around me, that speaking Russian is an educated way of speaking. And if I want to have a, a good career, I have to be speaking Russian and everything connected to that. And um, which is, now that I look at it, it's I, I, I'm learning to see the patterns, not only between not only within this conflict, which is a huge conflict that I believe connects the whole world, but also I'm finding connections to completely different parts of my life in the United States. Because all of a sudden, you, you, when the word touches you, you become sensitive to more things and um, you see parallels in many different areas. Um, I... Um, um, look at the language as one of my ways of learning Ukrainian history in particular. So I read books. Um, the My secret to reading books is that I started with uh, kids' books. I have a collection of kids' books just because uh, it's, it's a tradition in the family to give each other books. And I uh, got a whole bunch of kids' books um, 
from my brothers and uh, from my parents. Uh, so I started with simpler books with the really young kids, and I'm moving into older and older kids. I read short stories, and I reread books that I read in school and uh, I knew before. So there is a certain amount of time that I set aside for reading, because reading is one of my main ways of um, using a language. I listen to podcasts, uh, mostly podcasts uh, about books. Uh, I found that it's um, it's a topic that allows me to not be as emotionally involved. And there was something about being uh, in the hospital and having sort of suffered this this heart attack and being hooked to a monitor. My senses just felt uh, ultra. Uh, sen- it's almost like I had spider senses, and everywhere I was looking, I was making these observations, and it just I, I felt hyper aware of of everything that was happening around me. It was uh, it was bizarre. Uh, and uh but i would i would see these little interactions between people and there's this real sense that that was beautiful or you know that that's really cruel or i i can't believe humanity can sink to that level uh or that watching these nurses who were clearly uh overworked and they themselves their backs were hurting their feet were hurting so all of these these observations, uh, I just had this insatiable uh, craving to start recording it. Uh, it I felt as, as though I, I had to. I had no choice uh, to do that. Uh, and I remember uh, looking down at my backpack and sort of slipping my hand in and pulling out my sketchbook. And I, I, I remember taking this deep breath in uh, and in my head just resolving to document the experience. And so I sat there and just started drawing and observing and, and sort of getting sucked into this beautiful world of, of the hospital and, you know, people that you're not usually interacting with uh, and some of the conversations that were happening. It was, it was amazing, extraordinary. It was beautiful. And I, I have to say that when the fracturing of the media landscape or the information ecosystem, let's call it, became so pronounced that people were getting different, not just different versions of the news, but different news. Mm-hmm. Um, it really made it so difficult to communicate something because there was no baseline truth. And when you're writing comedy, what you're relying on is a common truth. You're relying yeah. <laughs> on um, people having the same point of reference. And what I mean by that is, you know, it was much easier when there was consensus comedy, which is like Johnny Carson getting up and saying, hey, did you see this commercial the other day? Or hey, just what about this politician? Because everyone was getting the same news. Everyone has uh, got the same culture feed in a sense. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. same points of reference, same cultural feed. Yeah. And to in a large part, that was actually bad because it meant that whatever that was curated to was all you got. But on the other side, um, you know, it helped people to understand certain fundamental things um, and, and communicate in such a way that they were talking about the same thing. Now people seem to be talking past each other. Mm-hmm. And it's why I don't do political cartoons anymore. I did them for 15, 16 years. Um, 
And I, I really don't do them much anymore at all. If I do them, I'll do them for the New Yorker, but they're less sort of <laughs> incendiary takes on politics and more sort of observational social um, outcomes based on political events. Um, and it's more like when you're writing jokes for people or writing uh, comedy for stage or for, you know, the New Yorker for gags or for the comic strip, Mm-hmm. you're really keeping your audience in mind and what their frames of reference are generationally yeah. and informationally, like what their sources of information are. Like the yeah. people I, I write the comic strip for, the demographics are 40 to 80. They read the newspaper and they watch the nightly news. Like that's their information diet. And, you know, they, they might subscribe to some newsletters on their phone mm-hmm. or their, their desktop, but for the most part, they're getting a traditional, let's call it a traditional media diet. And then for my sub stack, I know that it's a totally different audience again. And then for stand up, it's 18 to 34 and it's people who go out on a weeknight and they may or may not have kids. Um, you know, they have certain values. Um, and then when you go on the road, um, which I, which was a real eye opener when I started doing that in America, it's different again, because you're not in a blue bubble in a city like New York, you're, you're now speaking to people with different values and Uh different um, points of reference and, um, sort of even structurally, you know, like a, a town versus a city, you, your, the way you speak about things needs to either adapt to be sort of comprehensible to them, or you need to not change it so that it's a novelty to them. They're like, huh, this crazy guy from New York, I can't believe he thinks that it's like, you have to kind of pick one. You either want to, uh, be a chameleon and try and fit or you, you really double down on what's unique about you and you, uh, make yourself a bit of an odd duck. Uh, I do the, I do the latter now. I used to do the former and sort of code switch. Now I just go, you know what? I'm weird. Just deal with it. I think of it as the, the business of being an artist. Like you have to get serious about this. You can't just be locked into this creative mindset of being the temperamental artist and people need to, you know, the idea that people need to understand me and I am already the thing I need to be, but everybody else is not getting it is a little (laughs) conceited. And you need to, firstly, you need to uh, get off your high horse. And secondly, you really need to think about the business of being an artist, especially like, so how I put it is that in the internet and everything that's here now, it, enables us to be independent artists, somebody mm. from Perth, somebody from Calcutta, somebody from mm. uh, Vancouver. So there is this privilege we have, but this privilege of not needing to be in the right clubs, not needing to be in the right geographical proximities, this yeah. privilege also comes with the responsibility that now we need to do those things that we would otherwise be, quote unquote, seeking representation for. The yeah. idea of speaking like a person who is doing a job, the idea of making, you know, putting numbers to your work and invoicing and all of those mundane things, but also the challenging things like advertising and marketing yourself and being a bit of a brand. It's so important to do that because now you have the power to be successful in your lifetime if you really push for it. But you have to do those things you can't if to ask for somebody else to do those things is to surrender all of the power that even made it possible for you to do it yeah no that's absolutely right and you know it's it's uh, the other the other piece to it is 
because it, it sucks. Let's be honest. The business side of being an artist <laughs> does suck. It's it's not what you signed up for. It's not the reason you became an artist. But I'll tell you what, it's the reason you'll stay an artist. It's yeah. the reason you can still be an artist is because you had to figure out how to do that. And it takes a while. I mean, it took me a long time to really mm. realize the value of actually running yourself. Your, you are offering a service. Um, uh, you, you're treating yourself like a business. It, it, it sucks, but you got to do it. Uh, but in the same way, you know, when you, when you have staff in a company and say a new software comes out, um, or you want them to, or a new version of something comes out and you want them to sort of level up their skills, you send them on training courses, you, you know, you give them these, you know, training things and you you ask them to, to, to upskill. And the same goes for being an artist. There's a book I read every year by Nick Meglin. He was the editor editor at Mad Magazine. It's called Drawing From Within. It's a fantastic book, oh, Drawing really? From Within. And it's just a whole bunch of sketching exercises, a bunch of drawing and observation and development and upskilling on certain abilities. You would love it. Oh my God, it's right. 